This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear New York Girl by John Updike, which was published in The New Yorker in April of 1996. I'm interested more in the flanges, I said, but she knew already that I was interested in her. I had gone stupid. Something existed between us like a mist. The story was chosen by Tessa Hadley, who's the author of nine books of fiction, including the collections Married Love and Bad Dreams and Other Stories, which was published last year. Hi, Tessa. Hi, Deborah. So you came on the podcast a few years ago to read a story by Nadine Gordimer. Um, what made mm. you choose John Updike this time around? Well, it's funny, I hadn't thought of a connection between that Nadine Gordimer story and this, but I've just once popped into my head. I mean, in a way, what contrasted stories in that the Gordimer is so darkly political. And this is, if you like, an indulgent story, a story about surplus of pleasure in one mm-hmm. sense. But I remember Gordimer saying something somewhere about how Nobody would ask John Updike to write stories about politics or keep him to a political standard as they kept her. So they're so, (laughs) isn't it fascinating? These two things going on in the same world, two great writers, and one of them feeling that iron, steely frame pressing on her to be political and have the right answers. And some lovely freedom that Updike to my mind, writes himself into in his in his work. I'm a huge fan. I love his short stories. I think I love his short stories just a bit better than I love his novels, actually. I, mm-hmm. I Some of them I have been fascinated by, but there's something about the concentration of the short form with him that brings out all the things he's brilliant at. So this story, New York Girl, was published in 96... Updike was in his mid-60s at that point. It's Mm. quite a late story for him, given that Mm. his career as a story writer started in his early 20s. Do you think that it captures what he was best at? He's such a consistently good writer. (laughs) Not everybody is, but I honestly, I love the early and I love the middle and I love the late. And I'm not sure that I can point, unlike... Other writers, I don't know why, but I've kept on making comparisons, references with Alice Munro in my mind as I was reading this, who's so unlike him, but another great New Yorker writer. Um, Now, I really can talk about something that's different in early Munro, mid-period Munro and later Munro. I'm not sure I can in terms of style with Updike, but of course what gets added on in these late stories is this lovely retrospect. The crucial fact about this love story, if that's what it is, I think it is here, is that it's all viewed from 20 years, 30 years later. Let Mm -hmm. me just do my sums. Yes, that's that's sort of right. Yeah. (laughs) And do you think that in that time, you know, between when he was in his early 20s, and this story, that there's a new maturity in the work? Or do you think he's really kind of traveling the same paths? I kind of think he's traveling the same paths, but I want to say that with no No reservation (laughs) or a sense that it's disappointing. I just want him to travel that path. What happens is that experience adds on these new layers. So the experience of actually growing old and leaving the possibilities of young love 
and choice and escape behind you, I suppose they do deepen everything, and yet I'm not sure I can... I can point to anything shallow in the early stories, actually. I don't think he gets jaded. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a great thing in an older writer. I mean, I say older writer, of course, I'm almost at the age he was when he wrote this. (laughs) But but not to become jaded and not to lose the, the, the excited openness that you have writing when you're young. You mentioned to me that one of the things you wanted to talk about today was the way Updike has been criticized for his writing about women. Hmm. How does this story tie into that? So I chose this story deliberately to sort of test myself and push myself with this thing where I have heard much criticism. I've heard people say he hates women and everything in me doesn't recognize that, doesn't yeah. see that. And But I chose one deliberately where on the one hand... I think this is a story about the love of women, but I can read it with another bit of my head and imagine somebody else finding it deeply offensive. So it should be really interesting to talk about for that reason. (laughs) Well, maybe we should listen to the story now. Um, So we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Tessa Hadley reading New York Girl by John Updike. New York Girl In those days... New York seemed as far from Buffalo as Singapore does now. I used to take the train, all eight stultifying hours of it, or drive on Route 17, stopping off in Corning and Binghamton, where we had clients, and then coming down through the Catskills into Westchester County. Once you were in New York, I used to stay at the Roosevelt or the Biltmore, right around Grand Central Station, you were on another planet a far shore. It cried out for you to establish another life. Time, at home so filled with the needs of the house, of the children, of the wife, Carol felt herself ageing from her grey hairs down to her varicose veins. Was here your own, hours of it, and no one to tell you how to fill it once the day's appointments had been kept? Extruded non-ferrous metal, mainly aluminium alloy, was our product. Combination storm window manufacturers were our big customers, but in the 60s, a sideline had developed in metal picture frames, and this brought me into contact with the lower echelons of the art world. I visited galleries to see what they needed, and in one of them, on an upper floor on West 57th Street, I met Jane. She wasn't plain, but she wasn't a conventional beauty either. There was something asymmetrical about her, not just her smile, but her whole bony face with its high cheekbones and powdered-over freckles seemed a little tugged to one side. When she gestured, her arms and hands appeared too long with an extra hinge to them somewhere. Her gestures involved a lot of sudden retraction and self-stroking as if she were checking herself for loose parts. She kept flipping back her long, straight hair, a dull, reddish colour that reminded me of pencil shavings and the cedary fragrance that arises when you empty the sharpener. She wore a beige knit mini-dress and black pantyhose. Her hips were wider and her thighs fuller than one would have expected from the bony top half of her body, and this added to her touching aura of being off-balance there in the merciless brightness of the display space. The white walls held hasty abstractions, 
blue pigment smeared on white-primed canvas, all the same size, and framed in thin, cold-rolled steel like a row of bathroom mirrors. I'm not here to look at the paintings, I apologised, just the frames, to get an idea of what you need. I guess inconspicuous is what we need, she said, fluttering one long hand at the cruel wall and then quickly resting the same hand on the ball of her shoulder and giving it a squeeze. A lot of the artists can't stand any frames. They say it creates a mindset. They want it to look rough and are fighting the rectangle in any case. But we find, she said, relenting with a heart-catching crooked smile, the customers are reassured if there's a frame. It shows it's finished. The artist means it. I'm interested more in the flanges, I said. But she knew already that I was interested in her. I had gone stupid. Something existed between us like a mist. In those benighted days, such an interest was considered not an affront, but a datum to be factored into whatever one's life equation was at the time. Jane and I were both in our early thirties, a time for fresh calculations. Back in Buffalo, I had survived with my helpless family a tumultuous infatuation and its explosive denouement. In the aftermath, I had adjusted downward my estimate of how much happiness I could extract from the world and of how much I could offer any woman not my wife. I was wised up and shy, but then New York was another world an infinity of restaurants and apartments and elevator shafts and human appetites. I wasn't due home until late tomorrow night. For the flanges, Jane said, after a gawky hesitation and an alarmed stare that for a second burned through the mist that had arisen between us, you maybe need to come into the storage room. There in a crammed but not totally disorderly clutter of unframed art and unassembled frames, T-squares and knives and a scarred work table, we sat on tippy tall stools and each smoked a cigarette. What do you do, Stan? I described my job as a blended engineer and salesman of alloy extrusions. I described my eight-room house, my three-child family, my two-car garage in Eggertsville, and the new red Toro snowblower with which I tried to keep a path open through the fabled snows off Lake Erie. Now tell me about you. She smoked like someone who had never smoked before, bringing the cigarette to her lips with a flattened hand, the fingers tensely curved backward, she stubbed out the butt in a chunky green ashtray as if she were crushing a stubbornly vital bug. No time for that, sweetie, she said, dismounting from the stool with an awkward hop. Her shoes at the end of her long, full-thighed legs were a startling, shiny scarlet like red nails on black fingers. I hear people out front. Maybe they're stealing the art. I should go encourage them, she added. I have a child, too. A nine-year-old boy. No husband, no car, no snowblower, but a child. This time, her hesitation and her stare had a clear import. It was my turn to make a move, 
It was my turn to be awkward. Uh, would you... Would you like to have dinner tonight, or do you have better things to do? I bet you do. Somewhat to my disappointment, I foresaw complications. She was not busy. Sounds good to me, she said, brushing her hair back from one ear in a thoughtful way. How about to you? You don't sound too sure. What about the boy? I'll get a sitter. But really, on such short notice? In Buffalo, sitters were sullen teenage girls off in a 14-year-old's dream world, or else grandmotherly women, widows and spinsters who were highly valued and had to be signed up weeks in advance. I did feel dubious, but the mist between us was thickening. Really? Eight o'clock too late for you? I'll feed him and tuck him in. Here's the address. It's a walk from here. Don't be afraid. It'll be fun. Jane lived on the west side, 20 blocks north of where she worked. That night, or one soon thereafter, I was amazed to discover that numbers of cabs were cruising those streets at three in the morning. I had been fearful stepping onto Columbus Avenue drowsily emerged from the warmth of her bed. Our whispers of farewell still hissed in my ears. Her last kiss was evaporating under my nose. My whole body felt as defenceless as a slug's. I left because of the boy, so he wouldn't find me there when he awoke, and because of my wife, who might have been telephoning the hotel frantic with some domestic emergency. Carol had a nervous clinging streak beneath her trim aplomb. I had led her into multiple motherhood and then kept running away. Now I had my own emergency. The empty straight street stretched to vanishing points around me. A mugger, did we call them muggers then, could be waiting, switchblade ready in any of the upright dark doorways behind any of the brownstone stairs. But an all-night drugstore gleamed two blocks away and fits of traffic animated the avenue Within a minute or two, a taxi materialised, its roof lights signalling rescue. The driver and I were usually chatty on these returns to my hotel. He was pleased to have a fare, and my tongue was oiled by sexual repletion and a sense of escape. Those rides through the almost deserted city had a clean, clicking feeling of getting back on track. Pulling up at the hotel paying the cab driver, walking in my warm dishevelment past the non-committal desk clerk, into the elevator, down the windowless corridor, into the still, expectant room, I rejoined a self who had been here all along. The bed was cool and tightly made, with a mint on the pillow. Sometimes Jane came to my hotel. Once... When I had left the room dark in anticipation of her arrival, she asked as I let her in, Is this where the orgy is? Another time? The same time? How many times were there? We couldn't open the door when it was time for her to leave. It was absurd and frightening. An invisible enforcer had trapped me with the living evidence of my crime. This was after 2am, 
Long past time for Jane to be rejoined to her post-orgy self and to send the babysitter home. A woman in the apartment below would sit for her at short notice. A sisterhood of single New York women existed, egging each other on in the long odds game. Men, useful, unattached, heterosexual men, were scarce. Scarcer here than in the hinterlands. Jane taught me this to her disadvantage. For I rarely worried, in the months between my trips to the city, that she would not be there for me as glamorous and game as ever. The mystery of the locked room was never completely solved. The moral standards of hotel management were obscure to me. I stammered guiltily, calling the main desk. For what seemed many minutes of waiting, Jane and I were prisoners together, fully dressed and physically weary. Finally, a black maintenance man turned the latch from the outside with a master key, he fiddled bemusedly with the obdurate inner knob and chatted with us as if we were the most ordinary, consecrated, daylight couple who had ever required his expertise. We made a small society at that odd hour. He and Jane hit it off especially, vying in theories on the mechanical puzzle. She said, I thought it might be like a subway turnstile, you needed a token. It was a revelation to me, this we our camaraderie of New Yorkers and the city's genial way of folding my adultery into its round-the-clock hustle. Carol and I had met in college, the University of Buffalo. A math major, she was bright, methodical, compact and rounded. She had thick glasses and thin, serious lips, I saw at a glance that she would be a trustworthy partner and mother to my children. My estimate was sound. She was all I could reasonably ask for in a mate. We both studied too hard for much of a formal courtship. We just palled around and in our senior year agreed to get married. So to stop at one of Manhattan's corner flower shops and buy an armful of roses or gladioli was a rite of manhood I was undergoing for the first time. I was in a kind of limelight, playing opposite the veteran Italian actress behind the counter with her faint moustache and frayed sweater and tightly wound iron-grey bun into which a yellow pencil had been thrust at a dramatic angle. All my senses were heightened a notch. I registered with a feverish keenness the petaled colours massed with their reflections in the black display window and the chill that wafted out of the glass-doored refrigerator where the cut flowers were stored and the angry, deft gesture with which my co-star plucked the pencil from the back of her head and scribbled the receipt before sending me out into the street with my green cone of blooms. Bearing flowers enlisted me in the city's anonymous army of lovers. A few bright doorways up Columbus Avenue, I would stop at the liquor store for a quart of wild turkey, the most expensive brand of bourbon within my sense of possibilities. At home, Carol and I drank Jim Beam and not much of it. But I was somebody else here, a sugar daddy from Singapore. Flowers and liquor... What else could I take, Jane, to clothe my naked gratitude? I did not drop in at the liquor store often enough, 
four or five times a year, to warrant a greeting from the Dewar brothers who owned it. But after a year I could see something flicker across their wary faces, a suspicion that they should know me that I was familiar. My courtship glow made me stand out, perhaps. I was perhaps a young husband, new to the neighbourhood, and still dazzled by the delights of domesticity. A surely imaginary happiness bathes my memories. Once in January I stood at Jane's front windows looking down at the tops of a row of buttonwoods as the slanting wet snow laid crescents of white on each little round pod, while the apartment at my back overflowed with the plangent human peeling of the swingle singers performing bark fugues, a record Jane had received at Christmas I didn't ask from whom, and I felt joy to the point of tears. My body, wrapped in a loose wool bathrobe of hers, felt stuffed inside with the spiritual wooliness of sexual contentment. At my back, just off the kitchen, she was setting up our breakfast. Cylinders of orange juice and a squatter cylinder of marmalade glowed with inner light. The healthy scent of English muffins, toasting, intersected the sight of the diagonal snow adhering to the buttonwood pods. The morning moment kept overflowing, on and on, Bark going crazy the way he does, never getting enough. Geoffrey, Jane's son, was with a friend or his father, and so this once we had the apartment to ourselves. I had spent the night daring the phone back at the hotel to ring. Jane was close enough to my size so that I could wear her blue robe. I could never have got into a robe of carols. What I loved in Jane was her excess, her muchness, the hips so wide she walked with a seesawing lurch, the cedary hair that was always falling into my face, the angular downy arms, the legs that stretched to the corners of the bed. It was a single bed. We had slept badly, snoring in each other's faces, dodging elbows. Her ex-husband was an artist, not successful enough to supply child support or for me to have heard of him, but not so unsuccessful that he had to abandon an artistic image of himself. I hated and envied and could not imagine her world of artists, their lofts and debauches, their self-exemption from the ruck of the ordinary, their quick, cynical minds and mouths, their otherworldly charm. Nine-year-old Geoffrey was doe-eyed and shyly polite, perhaps because I always saw him when he was being put to bed at the moment of Jane's and my going out together. His tiny room's one tall window looked south, upon the lights of midtown mounting in rectangular masses higher and higher, an Arabian night's view that made me grateful to have been granted a small illicit purchase upon such display, such splendour. Geoffrey was precocious at school, and Jane was proud of that. Occasionally he and I talked. My impression was of a sly docility toward me, a guarded hope. His mother's loneliness was in the air he breathed, and I gave him a brief change of air. 
He was blonder than she, English-looking, with a pointed chin and pale skin and rosy cheeks. Only his owlish brown eyes and black eyebrows gave evidence of another strain, his father's. He had read lots of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. At school he was having a little trouble with how to add unlike fractions. Of the men in the margin of his life, I must have been the only one with a degree in engineering. You make the numbers so nicely, he exclaimed when I began to instruct him in common denominators. You've got to. If they're not clear, they're worse than useless. That kind of four you make with the closed top looks too much like a nine. But Stan, the fours in books all are closed like that. Books get away with a lot we can't get away with in real life, I told him paternally. It was enchanting somehow to be called Stan by a child the age of my own children. I was momentarily a member of this family, but the membership was woven of angel hair, insubstantial, with none of the weight of real family ties. I was temporarily magical to go with their magic, so precariously posed in mid-air here between the tops of the buttonwood trees and the stacked skyscraper lights. Jane's apartment was furnished with cheap chic. Unframed, out-of-series prints were tacked to the walls, and instead of end tables, she simply used stacks of art books and catalogues. I felt unprecedentedly nimble in this apartment, light-footed, stealthy, stealing happiness from these rooms and then gliding out the door into the elevator. How loud its doors and gears seemed in that solidly sleeping building. And on to the barren streets that with mysterious quickness yielded a roaming cab, its third eye blazing. Adventures Adventures with Jane. We had to eat. After the maintenance man finally let us out of my hotel room, we were both famished and found an all-night automat on East 42nd Street. It was like entering a hopper with a petty girl on my arm. Escorting Jane into any restaurant felt luxurious. We never phoned ahead. I didn't like jostling with the fruity, accented voices at the name places, La Cotte Basque and so on, but New York abounded with half-empty, no-name restaurants where they were happy to see you. The maitre d' beamed at the sight of Jane in her miniskirt and falling long hair. I remember a pricey Swedish smorgasbord in the East Fifties and a steak place with Texas decor and big windows overlooking Third Avenue and a fish place with wooden tables somewhere south of Washington Square. Broadway plays took too long to waste our precious time together on, but she did lead me to an underground movie somewhere in the dreary thirties and to a play in the village about a group of dope addicts sitting around waiting for their connection to show up. I kept hugging her during the play. Its message of hopelessness, of addiction, seemed to be directed at us and to enlist us in the scattered troops of rebellion in those pre-Vietnam years. But she pointedly did not respond, as if asserting, while her straying hair tingled against my cheek, that my romantic sense of it all let me off too easily. The art movie had no plot that I can remember, 
There was a lot of grainy, slow panning and some jumpy, surrealistic collage, including a quick, repeated act of fellatio that called Jane to exclaim softly at my side, Uh-oh. The act was faked with photographs of a dildo and a young woman's face, not matter-of-factly enacted for the camera as it would have been a few years later. For the time, it was daring, as was Jane, when, in bed, not without awkwardness, she startled me by suddenly dipping her head to touch her lips to the tip of my erection, like a small girl yielding to the impulse to bestow a kiss on the bald head of a favourite doll. The kiss was quick and light and seemed to startle her as much as it did me. It remains in my mind an isolated moment, lit by a flower shop glow, the moist, sheltered intimacy, the expectant soft petals. I didn't press her to repeat the gesture. Feeling it had stemmed from an overflow I was in no position to force. I could take, but I couldn't demand. What did she get out of me? A lesson in chopsticks. We had wandered into a rather over-decorated, underlit Chinese restaurant on Lexington Avenue with gold wallpaper and royal blue banquettes. Chopsticks were provided in little paper sheaths, but Jane reached for the knife and fork also set beside the plates. I asked her, Your other dates let you get away with that? She blushed and bristled defensively. My other dates, as you call them, don't take me to Chinese restaurants that often. I tried not to be curious about her life in the long stretches when I wasn't there. It would have been painful for me to know too much, and painful for her to confess that there wasn't much to know. Not classy enough, I suppose, I accused her, defensive in turn. Back in Buffalo, a Chinese meal out was a manageable treat for the kids or an easy way to see the boring couples Carol liked. I told Jane in a gentler voice, Chinese food and silvers shouldn't mix. There's no big trick to it. I unwrapped her chopsticks and took her long, freckled hand in mine. She seemed faintly frightened. I saw myself for a second in the mirror of her female mind. I was a man frightening, with big, prehensile hands. I told her, you rest one of them here against that finger so the thumb holds it in place and hold the other between these two like a pencil. Feel the mobility? With this pinching motion, you can pick up anything from a single grain of rice to a chunk of sweet and sour pork. I can do it, she announced after a while. This is wonderful. Oops, damn. Rice is the hardest. Sort of put them together like a shovel. Over thirty, she said, and I never thought I could manage chopsticks. I'd watch other people twiddling away and they seemed so debonair. Thank you, Stan. I accepted her thanks seriously. I was proud. I doubt whether Geoffrey really got the hang of common denominators, but I want to think that to the day she dies... Jane will be at ease with chopsticks because of me. I am losing her. The mist that arose when we first met, surrounded by glaring blue scrawls, threatens to swallow all the details. The chopsticks, 
the taxicabs in the depths of night, my proud impersonation of a man buying flowers for a sweetheart. What else can I remember? We must have talked, thousands of words, but of what? Our expertise was in quite different areas, and if we talked too long about our marriages, we would trip upon the fact that hers was ended and mine was not. Once, when, after a longer absence than usual, I entered her, she breathed in my ear, He's home, which almost unmanned me, it seemed so sad and untruth. My home was in Eggertsville, with the three children, the tired furniture, the Saturday night dinner parties, the Sunday morning men's tennis group for me and the Methodist choir for Carol. Jane's appeal was exactly that she was not home, that she was a splendid elsewhere. New York City did not miss me. It did not occur to me that she might. Once, explaining away a weepy mood, Geoffrey had a fever. She did not think she should leave him with Brenda from downstairs, so we sat together in our clothes in the room with the view of the tops of the Buttonwoods. Jane let drop. Yeah, but you haven't been racing downstairs every day to the mailbox hoping for a letter from Buffalo. Her letters to me, directed to my office at the plant, somehow bored and embarrassed me as well as putting a funny look on the face of the department secretary as she delivered one, addressed in Jane's sprawling round handwriting to my desk. The struggles of the gallery to survive, her glimpse at some opening of Robert Motherwell, Geoffrey's progress at school. The details of her world when I was not there seemed meagre and unreal. The details of my own might estrange her by painting a life less lonely than hers. In Buffalo, I had everything I needed for a life. Except for her, my New York girl, tucked into my consciousness like a candy after dinner, like a mint on my pillow. I have nothing much to say, I told her, except that I adore you. Adore? Implies a distance, doesn't it? Jane had a stern face she reserved for people who came into the gallery just to loiter on a cold day. She clumsily stubbed out her cigarette, smoked down to the scarlet filter, in a fashionably rough clay ashtray on her stack of art books. She had caught Geoffrey's cold and kept clearing her throat. You don't want to hear, I assured her, about which child of mine has had his bicycle stolen or which dog has died. I don't. Or how Carol had a flat tyre doing the carpool or how drunk so-and-so got at some other so-and-so's dinner party. This woman you almost left Carol for. You still see her? Althea Wattsworth. Sometimes, at big occasions, we all put a good face on it. Life must go on. I suppose that's what it must do. Yes. I was not comfortable with the tug of this conversation and went to the front windows, wondering if this was the last time I would ever see these treetops. To the north, there were few skyscrapers, just a low recession of streets and domestic windows, 
It might almost have been Buffalo along Seneca Street. For this Althea person, you really put yourself out? You tried to leave Carol for her? It displeased me suddenly that Jane knew these women's names. I suppressed the impulse to explain that I had seen how Althea functioned as a suburban housewife and mother, that I could envision her fitting into Carol's slot. I knew all the furniture she would bring with her. Jane's furniture was impalpable. It was the city itself, the universe of anonymous lights. I did, and I swore I'd never try it again. It was too painful for everybody. Geoffrey began to cough in the other room. A dry, delicate, only child's cough. And Jane went into him. I heard murmuring as she rubbed his back. She began to sing. I had never heard her sing. She had a sweet voice, reedy but true, with an unforeseeable hillbilly twang to it. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine, she sang softly to Geoffrey. You make me happy when skies are grey. After a while, the boy asleep, she came back to me and, unhurriedly, moving about with the high-haunched, ungainly grace of a deer, she took off her clothes. We made love on her foam-rubber sofa with its shaky chrome legs and afterward we ate through six toasted bagels and two half-pints of cream cheese. This may have been the last time I slept with her, but I doubt it. We phased out very gradually. The extruded aluminium business was facing an onslaught of fresh foreign competition from South Korea and Taiwan after all we'd done for them. And Buffalo became more involving and complicated, both at work and on the social front. And I stopped rigging trips to New York. Althea and I had been married for close to 15 years when I saw Jane again, in Rochester. Rochester, of all places, in the middle of winter, at one of the entrances to Midtown Plaza where they have the clockwork puppet shows. Christmas was over and the season's snowfalls had been compressed to a blotchy corrugated ice hard as iron. Jane was accompanied by a blonde boy I took for Geoffrey, but of course Geoffrey would be in his twenties, I realised. The boy was tugging at her, against the tilt of her crooked smile, and I could hardly talk, since the old mist between us had arisen, plain as she had become. She had put on a lot of weight. Her middle-aged face was round and red beneath a wool-knit cap and she was wearing one of those black quilted winter coats that serve as a suburban matron's uniform. Dog hairs and what looked like a few bits of straw were clinging to it. Jane, my God, I said, reeling backward from the firm, even complacent hug she bestowed through our wraps. What are you doing here? I live here, she announced. In Irondequoit, actually, we bought an old farm. We, I put off exploring that. How? How long? Oh, ten years. This is Tommy. Where's Geoffrey? Oh, in Taos, trying to be a painter, the poor darling. God, it's been bliss for me to get away from artists. 
What selfish boyish shits they all are. Ken works for Kodak. He's a chemist. We met the same way you and I did. He was trying to sell the gallery some process. Not a process. I just wanted to look at flanges. But can you stand it, Jane, out of New York? The city, I mean. She put a great black mitten hand on mine, and even through the wool-lined leather I felt the rightness of her touch, the velvety rightness come back to me, a texture of youth when the world bristles with options. I felt in her presence the fear of death a man feels with a woman who once opened herself to him and is available no more. I hated New York. I was dying to get out of it. You knew that, Stan. It's what made you shy. I... But the strange child was tugging her towards some keenly imagined pleasure within the mal, and the touch of her hand was pulled awkwardly away. Flipping that hand in midair, she urged me, Don't say a thing, sweetie. Be happy for me is all you have to do. That was Tessa Hadley reading New York Girl by John Updike. The story appeared in The New Yorker in April of 1996 and was included in his collection Licks of Love, which was published by Knopf in 2000. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Tessa, I was reading uh, a review in the London Review of Books by James Wood, actually, um, of Licks of Love, the collection the story appeared in. And he said this about the book. The stories are set in what the publisher calls classic Updike territory, which may or may not be a region you want to revisit. If Updike's earlier work was consumed with wife swapping, his late work is consumed by nostalgia for it. In the majority of the stories, a man now in his 60s and sheltering inside the leathery love of a functional marriage, usually a second one, fondly recalls an old girlfriend, or rather an old lust, since this is how the women are chiefly celebrated. So, obviously, he's one of those people who has sometimes criticized um, Updike's huh. writing about women. Do you think that's a fair description of this story? How would, how would you answer that? It, it's, it's half fair. I mean, although I, I kind of want to resist the critical part of it. Yeah. <laughs> All writers have their story. That, you know, however however capacious it grows. No, that's probably not true. There probably are some writers who have you know, three or four different modes. But if you can do what you do and you just do it 
so well, it adds to the truth of the world. So mm -hmm. if, I mean, that his description of this sort of leathery, older age looking back with nostalgia on 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 youth mm, that's where a lot of us find ourselves at some point <laughs> in life and 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 on the other hand it isn't just a generalizable experience in that it's so intensely and crucially set in a particular America in particular decades looking back on particular other decades so it, it becomes much, you know, becomes a record in the way that all the best fiction does, you know, the finest kind of subtlest record of, of a time and a moment. And as that time recedes, it gathers, if the writer's good enough, it gathers force for readers rather than losing it. But as for as for the other little, little jab of James Wood there about <laughs> it being lust rather than love, if lust is this good then what's wrong with it? I mean, that <laughs> first description of Jane, that she wasn't plain, but she wasn't a conventional beauty either. There was something asymmetrical about her, not just a smile, but a whole bony face, all of that. When she gestured, her arms and hands appeared too long with an extra hinge to them somewhere. Her gestures involved a lot of sudden retraction and self-stroking, as if she were checking herself for loose parts. Do you know, I actually thought when I was reading that... I thought, I wonder if men write about... The best men, a few men, write better about the appearances of women than I can think of women writing about the appearances of mm -hmm. men. Women write brilliantly about men, but it's as if there's a sort of blur of power and role and status and relationship that stops that seeing, which is the same as painters. You know, painters see women. They've spent centuries looking at them, seeing them. That's the male gaze. But we might we might sacrifice the male gaze at our peril because to be seen, to be seen so truthfully with such exactitude, isn't that a kind of love? That's an argument you can make. On the other hand, do you do you think Updike sees sees her inside? Does he understand her interiority? He has such um, detail of her external features. Well, first, her external features are not just... I mean, this is not she had legs up to her armpits and no. a beautiful bust and golden skin. It's so... I, I'm not sure that I can even separate the selfhood of a woman yeah. from that physical presence, first of all. But secondly, we really need to separate Updike from the man in the story. Yes, of course. Yeah. Don't we? Yeah. Although, you know, he's immensely sympathetic to the man and the man is a kind of avatar, but not wholly because in here, over and over, we do hear from Jane. Of course we do. Mm. We know that this isn't really enough for her. We sometimes the man knows it too. He has all kinds of intimations. That very poignant thing that, that's written about the son being a little boy who was used to the loneliness of his mother mm. and that when when the visitor is there, that the, there's a little guarded hope. Um, what is it? His mother's loneliness was the air he breathed. I gave him a brief change of air. That's, mm. uh, that's very poignant. Yeah. Her waiting for the letter. Uh, 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 things she says... I mean, that's the great gift of the storyteller, that you can you can have your narrator from one point of view, but then the people in the story, if you're a deep enough writer, speak back. 
and Jane speaks back all the time. And at the end, what do we learn? We learn that not only was he, as we've known all the way through, loving not just the woman, but but a dream in that is in her for him, this otherness, this New Yorkness, but we learn that she was loving the same thing in him, that all that time she wanted to get away, even if he, as the story tells us, deliberately was shy of that, avoided knowing it, was afraid of being caught and trapped. But she all the time was longing to get away from that arty New York world and get out into the suburbs, or into the, you know, upstate, and, and be domesticated. There's an irony. There's a poignant <laughs> irony, a kind irony. It's a kind story. So ultimately what happens in the story is that Updike knows both of these people very well, hmm. but he doesn't hmm. allow Stan to fully know Jane. Yeah, something like that. But incidentally, the story has its own ironies about his dull life, doesn't it? I mean, this is this is not a man who's who is super powerful. This isn't, for instance, a man who is a brilliant, talented and famous writer. This man sells aluminium. <laughs> and um, when he accepts that leathery domesticity, he's sort of accepting something second best, something that isn't quite the dream. And yet it's a very important thing that the man is not super powerful in the mm. story, is he? He himself is a, he's making compromises. He's doing what he can to bring up Alice Munro yet again. I remember some lovely story of hers where she writes about the immense burden on those young men in the 50s and the 40s who, having been youthful and free, suddenly had to take on the huge responsibilities of yeah. mortgage and, you know, family and children while they're women, in the case of Monroe, you know, lay at home on the bed trying to write stories and nobody <laughs> wants to tell the story completely in reverse, but it's worth yeah. remembering that. This yeah. is hard too. Yeah. It's hard. I think, I think if you want to make a case for this being an offensive story about women, it isn't Jane you look at, it's Carol, yeah. surely. Yeah. Carol, who, who is never described, you know, we get all of this descriptiveness about Jane. What we hear about Carol is only that she's bothered by her gray hairs and her varicose veins. And given that they're in their early 30s. <laughs> yes, those, I know. That's very seem true. A little prep. I mean, you know, perhaps it was having yes. three children in, in quick succession. Yes. But, um, yes. But we don't get much of an image of her. She has glasses. She's a bit. She, she's described in very practical, yeah. unromantic yeah. terms. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and she's appropriate for him. That's that's yes, what he thinks. That's of. right. No, I th I saw at a glance that she would be a trustworthy partner and mother yeah. to my children. My estimate was sound. He's never bought flowers for her. Yeah, that's. I mean, poor old Carol. That's not yeah. much fun. Yeah, but um, maybe she was like that. Stories have to tell the truth. Yeah. There are there are people who who resemble that thing and if we if the duty of storytellers is to go around rendering the profound inner lives of all women and their suffering they'll they'll have a problem won't they because yeah. there are some well you know, i think what what updike's heading out there is that's what stan thinks she is it's not may not and, be what she absolutely. is it's just absolutely. how stan sees her Absolutely. Because, do you know, Deborah, it occurs to me, actually, that we never know why he ends up with Althea. And maybe in the meantime, while he's been visiting Jane in New York, Carol 
has made up her own mind to leave or met somebody else. It's yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. We we never know, and that's and that's not the story no. that Stan can tell. This is a, a first person story, so it, we we can only yeah. trust Stan or not trust yes. him. Yes, yes, yes. The women are articulate and self possessed enough. I mean, Jane really in this story. Jane is self-possessed enough to convince us that Stan does not have the last word. He's not to be untrusted. He's not an unreliable narrator. On the contrary, of course, you know, there's a sleight of hand and he's a, he's a sublimely good narrator, in <laughs> fact. But there are gaps around his account of things which are deliberately left by the writer in which we can supply other versions of what happens. right. Right. And, and as he keeps saying, as Stan keeps saying, there's a mist that rises up in front of his eyes when he thinks oh. about Jane. And he, he's yeah. seeing through a mist, in a yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you think so much emphasis is put on how off-kilter and asymmetrical she is, you know, bony on top, white on the bottom, you know, all of these things that are unbalanced about her. And even in the description you quoted earlier mm. where she's got extra hinges in her arms and she's checking herself hmm. for loose parts. I mean, she sounds almost like a robot. Um, there's something kind of strangely mechanical. I, mm, I, haven't, I haven't read it like that. And do you know I've been, I've been a naive reader in, of that thing that he makes much of because I've just been thinking, oh, I know, I know that you can picture it. <laughs> I can picture it. What is that funny thing? As if she were checking herself for loose parts. I, I, and the way later on she does, she she actually grabs, she rests the hand, her own hand on the ball of her shoulder and gives it a squeeze and I can, I yeah. see it. So I haven't thought hard enough, which of course with Updike I should be thinking about exactly how we're meant to read backwards from that to me to mean very recognisable asymmetry that people have. And I kind of love him making it lovely mm. and making it desirable instead of perfection, instead of wanting dreary, you know, yeah. symmetry. But but what could it mean? What what's, yes? I mean, I suppose it might cue us in to this thing I raised that it becomes more and more apparent as the story goes on that what Jane is in the love affair for is the very opposite of what Stan is in the love affair for. He wants glamorous Arabian Nights New York with its, you know, its thrills and its its cynical artists, however much he's afraid of them. He, yeah. You know, he's sort of <laughs> desiring them all through her. And she wants to get away from them because she knows they're shits and they're no good and she wants to be safe and solid. Now, maybe... That physical mismatch in her it just just alerts us mm. to mm-hmm. you know that 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 she's complicated and that there yeah. are two parts of her. There's the part of what he wants, and then there's the part he's rather deliberately not noticing or not paying attention to, which yeah. wants safety. I don't know. I think it's it's also sort of fascinating that he sells frames, you know. He's he's not involved mm. with the art. Mm-hmm. He's, he goes in the gallery, he mm. can barely glance at it. He wants to see the, mm. the, the flanges. Um, <laughs> but also, in, in a sense, Jane, for him, is a frame. She's sort of the frame through which he sees New York and, and, yeah. and has a love affair with New York and the, yeah. the freedom yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and then there's that strange moment when he goes to buy flowers and he sort of puts himself in a frame or on yeah. a stage, you know, he's he's an actor. He's playing a part, yeah. and so is the grumpy lady in the flower shop. You know, there's something. Mm, mm, mm. 
it's all very performative and self-conscious mm. and not quite real. Do you think that is partly Updike uh, sort of acknowledging what what a hostile reader can find in here, which is this sort of consummate polish, this gift of description, mm. which is what I love so much, but almost turning it on, framing everything, framing it as James would would complain, you know, over and over again on on the on the walls of the gallery <laughs> in rather similar sort of paintings. Is he is he even kind of flirting with saying that? Saying right. this story framed I don't know. I don't a slight, know. A slight a, wink at the critics. Well he certainly you know in, the, in, the, at, yeah. in the Beck stories he's he's constantly winking at the critics. Yeah. He's um, such a good critic himself. I, I just adore his critical writing. So I can't believe he's not alert to as it were every layer of possible messaging that could be in here. So that that, that sort of works for me. <laughs> But I am a naive I am a naive reader of this story, I think. I I just fall into its to what it tells and what it sees before anything else. And I suppose that's the kind of writing I love, which which sees with such acuteness and such beauty. Uh, it seems so hopeful, this story. Isn't that funny? Because it's a very sad story about loss and unfulfillment, really. And yet something in the language of the story seems so hopeful to me. Here's something that I feel about both Updike and Munro, that they what they seek out is the mystery, something almost religious in the joy hidden inside the most ordinary moments. So the fulfilment or the, the happiness or the hope doesn't it's not future. In the future, there is aging and putting mm. on weight and not being beautiful anymore, and not being able to have that sex with the women anymore or the men anymore. But in the now, in the moment, there is that snow falling diagonally on the whatever they are. I don't know what these trees look like. Buttonwoods. Buttonwood trees. Buttonwoods. (laughs) And and the marmalade jar and the orange juice. Only John Updike could make those things transcendent. And the swingle singers, who were surely awful... (laughs) I don't know. I hope I don't offend anybody, but I, surely their versions of Bach are really terrible. But but there you are, in their moment, at the period, with the right furniture in the room, it becomes a, a, this lovely transcendent vision of possibility, and that's where the hopefulness is. Yeah. What is he? What is it? What is that thing he says about Bach? Um, Bark going crazy the way he does, never getting enough. That's a superbly right, of course, but it's lovely when you think of Bark in his wig, in um, <laughs> attached to the church in Protestant Germany. It's marvellous. So we get these kind of sort of sublime scenes of, of Jane's domesticity and, and actually a surprising amount of tenderness and detail about her little boy, you know, yes. including what yeah. he likes to read, yeah. you know. He's reading yeah. Tolkien or yeah. C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And we get nothing about Stan's own children and Stan's mm. own home life. We never see him there. No. You think that's quite but deliberate. That, that's this story. That's the, Yeah, I think that's quite deliberate because actually Updike is a superb writer about children. Mm. I think that's that's really one of his greatnesses. Family life 
he he loves it. All those maple stories. I know yeah. he's he's marvelous about children. So that's this story where the whole point is that the rest of it is off stage, and yet the thing that's off stage is, of course, the reality. Or in this story it is, you know, in other places. Metaphysically, it's complicated because he could swap. He could move in with Jane. But, of course, if he moved in with Jane, it would become the main story. It would become the domesticity all over again. The whole point of Jane, for him, not for Jane, which the story is very knowing about, is that she remains a possibility trembling on the edge of the real in time. It's as if there are two kinds of time in the story and one of them is forward-marching, linear, inevitable and not miserable. There's not a huge complaint. This is not an, mm. about anomie in the suburbs. It's a fond and affectionate story about that too. But then there is this other possibility in the now that can't be pinned down and had forever in hell. And that's surely one of the great Updike themes is, you know, that you can swap wives and swap partners. And in the end, it's not a horrible thing about the woman that you're saying. It's just then it will become another marriage. How can it not be? That's yeah. what happens when two people get together and then live together and have children together. Or even those the stories he writes about late marriages without children, you know, but soon they're bickering and, and sort of familiar, <laughs> familiar and looking yeah. after each other in illnesses, you know. That, that's the real, but there, there are these two time frames and he honours both of them, both the, the real which ticks forward cruelly and frighteningly and then, then this glimmering, greedy, sensual present mm. that we snatch. And which... which is insignificant in the long term, really, except that he remembers it fondly. You know, it was this candy on his candy after dinner, his mint on his pillow. But yes, his the, mint on his pillow. <laughs> but is it? But it's not insignificant because here's a whole story made out of it. Yeah, it may be everything, but you can't keep it. You hold it in art, but not in time. But the central drama of Stan's life happens completely off stage. You know, this first the affair he had with Althea, yeah. which almost yeah. destroyed his marriage, and then the destruction yeah. of his marriage and the remarriage mm. to Althea. All that, we get we get no sense of why he ended up with Althea, and Jane was this sort of interlude between his you know between his marriages in a sense. So mm. he was still with Carol. Mm. Do you think we should we should take from his remarriage? The, the sense that he didn't have that strength of feeling for Jane. You know, he didn't leave Carol for her, but he did leave Carol for Althea. Yes. In, I mean, he had a different kind of feeling for Jane, which depended mm. on her being in New York Yeah, and intermittent. And that's, that is cruel. I mean, perhaps I've slightly over-egged the kindness and generosity of the story, but, of course, it would be a silly, sickly, saccharine thing if it wasn't also about cruelty. Yeah. The cruel thing is that he wants her to be the mint on the pillow. That's yeah. just... That's that's a fact in life. Um, you could say it's cruel in a funny way that she wants him to actually get her out of there. Yeah. Uh, People want things of each other that the other person can't deliver. That's that's just perennial. Uh, there's a very interesting moment, isn't there, when he's teaching her to use the chopsticks and he puts his hand over hers and then he, he says she almost looks frightened and he can see that he's a big man with a big hand 
and that mm. he might hurt her. I, I'm not using the exact words, but that's that's a fascinating little intimation of that cruelty that's always close when people expose themselves to each other like this. Yeah. Um, there, there's always the potential for that to turn and, and become so wounding and so frightening. And, and he, he invokes that at that point, though, of course, in a context in which it's not going to happen. And instead, he teaches her to use chopsticks. <laughs> and, uh, but there's also the wonderful way he introduces that scene. You know, he's talking about how he, he what he gets from being with Jane is this feeling of sort of like being magical yeah. and weightless yeah. and he can float yeah. around. And what does Jane get? Well, she learns how to yeah. use chopsticks. She gets chopsticks surely lessons. That's, <laughs> yes, that's surely a piece of comedy against men. <laughs> But what he gets from her is this sort of extraordinary moment of sexual and romantic completion, fullness, and then what can he cast around for the equivalent? It's sort of mansplaining, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. That's, and that's, that's Well, at least I taught her to use about. chopsticks, you know. <laughs> yes, I know. I know, it's wonderful. Um. And yet it's... But, you know, because he's such a roomy writer... He's, I'm sure, making that point. That's a funny thing. And yet he also manages to make the... One does feel pleased when one learns to use chopsticks for the first time. And the sort of try... It becomes a lovely comedy. It, mm-hmm. This is such mm-hmm. a lovely comical story. It's so not a tragic story. He's not a very tragic writer, really, I don't think. Although, you know, that comedy... Well, I've always, I always think comedy is yeah. as big as tragedy. Yeah. Just, well, it's just the minor tragedies. There are no, they're no great tragedies, yeah. just minor ones. No great tragedies. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Do you, so do you read this story? Do you think that Stan looking back is, is looking back only with that, you know, sense of nostalgia? Or do you think he feels regret or shame or any of those any of those negative feelings when he looks back at this hmm. affair I don't think he feels shame mm-hmm. I think that Updike is quite coolly realistic about that actually it, there is just no evidence there that he feels shame what he feels and what Updike writes I don't think he writes shame yeah. actually very well or oh, very much he doesn't yeah. he's not very interested in it but what he writes so exquisitely in that scene is that searing sense of the loss of youth which can't be negotiated with you know there was no other choice which could have ended up with him not being middle-aged that you know, that doesn't matter yeah. who he chose or where he went or whether he moved to New York or became an artist, you still grow old. And the women who once opened themselves to you are available no more. But that's a 66 year old man's anguish at aging rather than a 40, whatever he is in the story. Mm. Yes, I think. So that's what he feels just the, the anguish of the lovely youth and love and sex in the middle of young life that can't be had back. Yeah. Gone. But she gets the last word and <laughs> and it's a generous word and one's felt all the way through and I think Stan has felt that Jane is a very generous person. She gives herself, she gives herself kindly and that awkwardness in her Perhaps it's, you know, she's no sexual gymnast. One feels that. This is yeah. what she's quite shy, that one moment I had to read when she 
kiss his, his penis and, you know, that, that, that sort of shy and surprising and he feels he can't demand it of her. He can't. He t- can take what she gives. That's a lovely thing in him, by the way. That's a nice moment. Yeah. You know, another man might demand it. Um, he, he's he's not a he's not a beast or a boor at all. But she's a generous woman, and at the end, her gesture when she meets her old lover is generous. Sort of lets him off. Don't say a thing, sweetie. Be yeah. happy for me. Yeah. Is all you have to do. And I suppose one might think. Here's a thought that. Women in middle age with their, you know, she has another child and she sort of got what she wanted and what he longed for in her, he can't have. He can't have it back. So, so funnily enough, the, the, women, the woman does get the last word in this story yeah. and sort of got what she wanted, only not in him. Well, thank you, Tessa. That was a pleasure. Thank you, Deborah. John Updike was the author of more than 20 novels and a dozen story collections. He won two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, and the National Medal of Arts, among many other awards. Updike published his first story in The New Yorker in 1954 when he was 22, and went on to publish more than 160 more before he died in 2009 at age 76. Tessa Hadley, who won the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction in 2016, is the author of six novels, including The Past and The London Train. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2002. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Tessa Hadley reads Nadine Gordimer's story, City Lovers, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.